Hello, and welcome to Lost in Citations, our weekly podcast where we speak to producers of interesting content and try to learn a little bit more about them. Joining us today is Alexandra Burke, who's an expert in neurodiversities. She published the article, Neurodiverse Students in Your Classroom. In the May-June 2020 edition of the journal, The Language Teacher by JALT Publications. So Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Todd. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh, it's, it's so wonderful to have you here. So as we start off, can we first just go over the term neurodiversity? Is, that, is there a difference between neurodiversity and learning disability? Is one word better than the other or? Um, I, tend to, I tend to use uh, neurodiversity because when you, when you do say the word disability, it, it automatically puts the focus onto disability and they are quite um, political expressions, but my, my preference is to say neurodiverse because to me, it covers a wider range, range of um, things that we know about and things that we perhaps don't know about yet. And I think it's, um, I think it, to me, it's the best fit, depending on who I'm speaking with, if, if their preference is to use the other term for particular issues, I, I tend to follow with them. So it is very much a term that's important to whoever is using it, really. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I never really thought about thought about it until I, I read the term, and I noticed that that term was used, and not the other term I was common with. I was, you know, familiar with. So it does make uh, a lot of sense with what you're saying. So neurodiversities, it is. Okay. So uh, talking about neurodiversities, is it a big problem in other countries or countries around the world, for example, Japan, in regards to ESL or learning a foreign language. I think it's a, um, I think it's an issue anywhere in the world because it's what's called a, it's a hidden disability. So here we go. We get back to using the word disability, but with a person who is in a wheelchair, you can, you can see that, or a person who is using a cane to help them negotiate the footpath, you can see that, but a person who has a neurodiversity, you don't know until you put them into a situation where they have to do something or they have to, they're expected to behave in a particular way and they may not be able to. And mm. it might be because of how the information that they're being presented with is, um, is, is given to them. So it's the classic of um, ask a fish to climb a tree and ask a monkey to climb a tree and see who can do it better. So that's a pretty basic analogy, but that's the difference. So it depends whether you're a fish or a monkey or, or what you are. Well, that's a really good analogy. So in, in countries like, let's say Japan, we both teach in Japan and uh, you're from Australia and I'm from the US In our countries, there are tests that are done to see if you have any neurodiversities uh, are children tested in Japan at an early age? Uh, children have a range of tests at when they're entering elementary school. And um, I can't tell you a huge amount about those tests, but they, uh, they also have health screening, which is really unusual in, in the world to sort of actually have a, a universal health screening of children at age four before they enter school, which is great. But they, uh, in terms of actual screening for dyslexia, that to my knowledge, that isn't happening yet. And it, depending on where you are in the world, it, it may be state-based um, state based screening or it may be national screening, but certainly in Australia, it's not standardised screening in all of the states and territories yet. It's taking, a, uh, it's taking everywhere around the world a long time to get to that. Some countries have got to it faster than others, but it's still not a, it's still not a given. Mm-hmm. And there are places where they're moving towards an acceptance that there will be a certain percentage of people will have neurodiversity anyway. And let's start by making our environments more barrier free rather than having to test everybody to find out what they what they uh, what their situation is. And that's actually the direction I'd like to see things going in. So more specifically, what would you like to see done? I would like to see that um, people who have difficulty seeing a board get to sit nearer the board. I'd like to see people who need to have information 
in maybe a digital textbook to learn by audio. And uh, I'd like to see them just being able to, to have the option to put on the headphones and listen to the text in real time at the same time as their colleague sitting next to them is reading it in a traditional style. I think that if we can have it set up so that learners can learn in the way that works for them, yeah. that will be the most efficient way of teaching because the bottom line is we want people to know things. I think how they demonstrate that is less important. And this is increasingly so as we've got more options of using um, computing technology to yeah. um, do some of the things that you might've had to do by hand before. It's interesting you bring that up because I'm active in the extensive reading community but I'm also a tech guy and I'm also really big on audio. You know, I, I have my own listening websites. And when you offer new ideas to people in the community, it's amazing how teachers frown on any alternative method for the same information being disseminated to students. So for example, I was suggesting that rather than read books for extensive reading, something like Netflix or videos with captions is just as effective. They're still getting the same word count, but they're just doing it differently. They're getting the image behind the text. They're getting more context as they read. They're getting less text on the screen. They're getting audio synced with the text. I mean, you can go on and on to the benefits, mm. but what's shocking is how many teachers frown on it because that's not the way we do it. And it's almost like that's almost the biggest problem is that teachers are so set in their ways. They don't want to try to use new media or new forms of trying to do the same thing. Well, I think that education has a long series of traditions behind it. And those traditions are changing over thousands of years. But predominantly at the moment, it's, it's been paper-based text. And that's a dramatic change in the last 20 years. And a very dramatic change during the, the COVID year. The COVID era has suddenly shifted things, the focus to how can we do this online? How can we reinvent, et cetera? And I think it's actually a, um, it's a the COVID situation is terrible, but it is the one bright light in it is this diversity in educational opportunities that people have now. And what might seem really natural to one person reading might feel relaxing. Physically reading might feel really relaxing to another person it will cause enormous stress. And there's good evidence to show that when you are stressed, you are not learning. And the number one stressor for a person with uh, perhaps dyslexia or reading disorder is to be asked to read aloud in front of other people. And that's absolutely going to shut that student down. And there's, then there's a question about, oh, well, if I don't hear them read, how will I know that they're, that they're understanding? And I guess you had to look at the, the methods to using for testing comprehension. And even testing comprehension, are you going to test that in a written form or are you going to test it in a game form? Are you going to test it by um, getting them to write or getting them to match boxes? Or there's so many different ways you can put to check whether they comprehend something, put, put a couple of people together and get them to discuss what they've just seen. I mean, even lower level students can talk about a picture and have a conversation about what's the meaning about it. And then you can see if they can use the, the language points that you've taught them, if right. they can apply them. Sorry, also, I don't know if that's... No, I think that's wonderful. You know, I mean, well, one of the things that kind of baffles me as a content creator is the the data problem in terms of, you know, what data does the student actually ascertain? What do they actually get? Because any, like, let's say you take a, a text and a text has, I don't know, let's say 500 words, okay? The data points in that text might be 300 to 1,000, right? There's so many different bits of meaning that are in there. And yet when we do reading comprehension, we often just ask for them to point out two or three things. But that doesn't seem very fair because there's no way that everybody's gonna get every data point. They're gonna get all the information, right? So it's kind of like selective choice. And I kind of worry about that. And I imagine if you have some type of neurodiversity, it would be even worse because, you know, 
who knows what they're seeing or what they're hearing and what they see and hear could be a lot different. I think that's unfortunate because I think when we get locked into one way of saying you must look at it this way, this is the only option such as um, you must focus purely on phonetics only to solve dyslexia, or you must focus on um, a particular way of studying to learn any particular thing. You're not taking account of people's brains being slightly different. So you've got the bulk of people, yes, perhaps that is how they learn, but you will have this group of outliers at the ends who may be seeing something different. You know, that's that makes so much sense. And, I, you know, the problem I suppose we have in education is, you know, the concept, well, it worked for me, right? So if it worked for me, it should work for you. And, and that's obviously not the case. And the people who are in education are usually people who've managed to go through the system quite um, readily. Yes. So they haven't had they haven't had issues or hurdles. And there's a um, academic in Europe. Um, sorry, I'll have to think of her name in a moment. And she came up with the term of glass hurdles. And I think that's a really good one because we do, we don't know where the glass hurdles are. Oh, that's a, what, can you explain that concept a little bit more? What, how well, often the, that works? In terms of we're running towards a hurdle, we're running down a track and I have glass hurdles in front of me and you don't. So you keep running really fast, but the person who has these invisible hurdles is going to smack into them. Oh, right. Oh, right. And they're never going to know where, when they're there. And then they just come. And they just come and suddenly that person falters and everybody looks at them. Well, the lane's clear. Everything looks good. They had good shoes. They had everything everybody else did. But having the same conditions as everybody else doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, that is you're going to be able to produce the same output. Right. Um, another aspect is uh, I've found that often students who who uh, might have difficulty with reading and don't produce much writing, they might be really interested in um, things like um, uh, geometry. They might be really good with spatial mm -hmm. shapes or they might be incredible at art or they might be good with machines. They might be good at problem solving and they might have extremely fast reactions or extremely slow ones. But they're, everybody has sort of different balances and things, but predominantly we're measured by what we can read and what we can write in a classroom. And if we only, if we look at reading, as the method of whether or not you have potential, then you'd have to say, why does reading in a traditional way mean you have potential? And why does like reading the same material, but by audio, why is it different? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, totally yeah, agree. Why is writing by typing? Why is typing? Um, worse than handwriting. Why is handwriting better than typing? We don't, these shouldn't, to me, these are things that shouldn't yeah. be judged. Or voice dictation. You know, in, in the list that you have, in your, right, you know, in your appendix that you have, we'll, we should go over that in, in a minute, but in your appendix, you have this one called um, dyspraxia. Mm. And in it, they talk about how you're not good at writing, you're slow at writing. And when I read that, I'm like, oh, that's what I have. Because uh, I forgot about that phobia that I had when I was in high school, because I'm showing my age. I'm before the, the, the computer era, kind of. Mm. And back then, you had to write a lot. And I was so slow at writing. And I would see people write, and I would just marvel, like, how do you write that fast? that's impossible to write that fast. Like I was just so slow at writing big looping circles. And it was interesting when I was reading the appendix to see all the, the neurodiversities broken up and how people could have one of these and they wouldn't even know it. Mm. And then they, they see it. And like the one that I'm describing here, I mean, it was me to a T exactly everything across the board. 
and I never would have known. So can we kind of go over these? Um, and can you explain yeah, the sure. differences? There's, you have six in your appendix mm. in the article. Um, and the first one, of course, is dyslexia. Mm. And what exactly is dyslexia? People hear about that a lot. And they, they just hear like, oh, you, you have words backwards or something like that. But can, can you go into it more in depth? Like, what does it actually mean? Well, it's slightly difficult to describe because uh, there are levels, different levels of dyslexia. So I have a certain amount of dyslexia and it seems to affect my reading speed depending on what I'm uh, looking at and how it's presented. So, but I was always a fast reader. So nobody in my family suspected I had it. Whereas some of my siblings actually read a lot more slowly than I did. So that basically dyslexia may affect your ability to connect um, sounds to letters or to sounds to um, kana or kanji. And it may affect your ability to be able to arrange phonemics. It may also affect you in the way that you, um, your ability to recognize shapes of letters. So you may not recognize D or B and the orientation. And people say, oh, this is, you know, that's not real sort of D and B flipping. Well, I, I see it all the time. Mm -hmm. I see it constantly. And I see, and I see students who are constantly erasing letters and rearranging them. Um, with dyslexics, I often see students who have their handwriting is undulating. And to me, that seems to be, it's so common that it does, and it goes with students who move their head when they're writing. They're reading and they're writing and they're moving their head, moving their head and shoulders around. And I, I just see so many of these students with the same writing pattern that it's, um, there seems to be a connection in there. And I don't think that's been explored at a very high, you know, at a wide level at this point, I'd like to see more of it. Copying from the board is really difficult for people with dyslexia. And one of the issues seems to be that people with dyslexia can be affected by peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. So they're getting, they're, um, they're getting the information being distorted by what they're scanning over. So I try to encourage students to place where they're writing, the, the surface they're writing on, as close as they can to the area that they're reading from, the, the text that they're analysing or the, the, uh, the words that they're attempting to copy or whatever. I want to try and minimise the amount of superfluous text that they're scanning across so that they can focus better. Um, and they, dyslexics, uh, usually they're able to talk really well about something, but when it comes to performing on a written test, they're going to be really, really low scores. And that's, uh, yeah, that's very um, hard to deal with year after year after year of always being at the bottom of the class when you can, when you can talk about, uh, when they can easily talk about what they what they don't what they know they can yeah. listen analyze it and tell about it but they just can't um spell it correctly or they can't um produce the words they need you know left you, and right is the problem <laughs> yeah and you see that with students a lot you know at the university where I, I work the students have to write these essays and they really struggle and they write these really complex almost uh, like they're poorly translated um, samples of writing and they would never say it the way that they write it. Mm. So you always mm. say like, well, how would you say it? And then mm. they'll say it and it's so simple and, and, you know, to the point, mm. then you'll ask them, well, why, why don't you write it that way? And they just shrug <laughs> their shoulders. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's a, um, that's a really interesting thing with the dyslexics um, arranging or, or people with re reading disorder in general, arranging, arranging information is hard. And one solution uh, is uh, to, uh, which is something I describe in the article is to get a piece of card, or you can even just put a pencil above where you are reading 
above the point of the page that you're trying to focus on so that you're blotting out the extra information. And when students are, um, when they read something, they're analyzing something and maybe they're doing uh, rearranging words or something, um, I try and teach kids to read the sentence, read the question twice, read what you're analyzing, write your stuff, read it again, read it aloud in your head. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense to read in your head and check that you've got everything there. And like 99 times out of hundred, when a student reads it aloud, they go, they read along and then they get to the word and they stop and they go, Oh, and they redo it and they fix the word. And then they read to the end again. And they're like, Oh, okay. Oh. And that's all it is. It's as simple as encouraging people to read it again after they've written it. Which is a natural process, isn't it? You know, our it is a natural is process. Doing that, yeah, it is. But we, um, but I believe that when um, children are quite small, like the amount of effort involved in learning to read is so draining that in the early stages of elementary school in year one and two, where they're teaching kids these processes and structures, I know that they do it in Japan. They 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 definitely teach kids strategies for dealing with work those kids are so overwhelmed they're not taking it in right and then when they're a bit older um they um start to be aware of more of processes and things going on and they start to realize oh that is there oh i didn't see that before but by that point they've lost so much content material because they've been working slowly mm-hmm and they, because they're make, they're realizing that the world isn't random. There's actually an order to a lot of things, but they weren't aware that there was an order there. Yeah. So teaching people content words is really, really, um, and question sentences are really important. And one of the strategies I use in the classroom with that is um, I get the students to read out the questions. Mm-hmm. And if I'm working with a teacher, I say to them, uh, no, please have the students read it. Let's have them read it. And what the advantage of that is then is that all of the students in the class um, are expecting to look at this, look at the question. If they haven't got the ability to read it, they don't have to be humiliated by having to ask, what do I do? They can actually all hear the instruction by listening to their classmates. So everybody starts the, the, the everybody's at the starting line with the same understanding of what we're expected to do. And telling students, uh, teaching them to preview information, to preview mm-hmm. a page before starting on a worksheet, just, hey, but um, just preview everything. Now, mm-hmm. you might assume that you're gonna preview everything, but not everybody does. Students with um, um, ADHD as well, they may never have thought about there being a logic and an order to things mm-hmm. because so much of their life won't have a logic and an order to it. Mm-hmm. And they're used to making mistakes, so they're just not there um, and being criticised for them. So they're they're not expecting order. So if you can teach students order um, structure and order skills from a young age, I think that makes a big difference. And I've watched it. I've watched that in classes. So mm. you do see that. I mean, I remember back in my you know my college days. You know, I I was not the best student, and you know the simple study skills that they would teach you really helped. For example, uh, if you're going to read a chapter, go through and read every heading first. Just go through and read every heading first. Look at every picture, read the captions in every picture before you even start reading the text and go through the, the chapter in five minutes and then go mm. back and now read the article or read the chapter. And it really helps. It mm. makes it so much easier because you have those landmarks and you know where you're going, you know how far mm. along you are you you activated these skills but it is true that we don't really teach this to students anymore at least i don't think we teach it as much as we should or we assume that they're doing this these Mm. basic skills and and like you said they're probably not Mm. and if they weren't able to take in that information at the right time when everybody else did uh that yeah they've missed that chance so particularly the beginning of university in first year beginning of first year is a great time to just go over those kind of study skills and in in a classroom very simple strategy in a classroom is on uh, on the board of having a 
uh, just a section of the board showing where the what's going to happen during the class. Just sort of simple mm -hmm. headings of okay, we're going to go with this, 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 and this, and then I also usually have up a a useful words box on the board as well. So if something comes out of that class, language that um, students know, something that they'd like to be able to use, and there's something that I'm going to use when I'm teaching them, I will put it into that box so that they can uh, they can see it, and I'll get a volunteer to to put the um, the, the the translation neatly in it, and then um, and then from then on I don't have to use that and I'd never use Japanese for that again mm -hmm. because they've all had they've had a chance to use it I'd also get students to take a picture of the board so, yeah it's interesting because the students were kind of ahead of that before the teachers were mm. so you know when the when the mo the cell phones or the not the cell phones but the the smartphones became ubiquitous well, you know and every student had them that's the first thing that they they learned. It's like, hey, I don't have to write it down. <laughs> I can just take a picture of it, right? It's a lot easier. Yeah, uh, that's actually me too. <laughs> right. Take yeah. Pictures of things. <laughs> and interesting. When they first were doing it, you would think, oh, you're cheating. You can't do that. You have to take notes. And I still believe um, heavily in taking <laughs> notes. I buy all that's my very students a notebook. I actually buy them a notebook, and I say, okay, now it's time to write. And I, I give it to them as a gift. I'm like, I don't trust you to go buy it. I, I here it is, your <laughs> your class issued notebook. Please write. When I tell you to write, you write. But still, it does help. Like you can't beat just taking a, a quick photo of the board. And it's so brilliant that we have all these tools or recording the teacher. You know, like we don't do that enough. Where we say, okay, can everybody? Can you please take out your your mics on your phone, and you can record me for the next. Um, minute you can record mm. me for the next five mm. minutes you can mm. record yourself record your conversation that you're going to do with your students but we are kind of slow aren't we to to really optimizing all these amazing tools that we have well i'm actually a musician and one of my uh, one of my neurodiversity things is that i can't read music and i can i can play music i can i have got good pitch and I can play well, but I wasn't able to get into a college of music because I couldn't read music fluently. I can understand all the structure of it, but I can't actually um, track music along because it, it's, it, the music seems to undulate and I lose my place really quickly. Whereas I can listen to something and I can replicate it almost immediately. So my, my way of learning music has always been to have a tape recorder back in the, and that's carbon dating me too now, but um, carrying a recording device. So when I came to Japan in 2005, the first classroom that I went into, I arranged, that was in high school, and I arranged to do a, um, a trial of using the phones, using the kids' phones to record in class um, the target language that I and the colleague were using. And at that point, we, yeah, uh, cool. and at that point, some phones had no recording technology at all and others could record for 15 seconds. So you can imagine the speed we were working at to get to the keywords in Japanese and English into 15 right. seconds. Okay, ready, everybody, three, two, one, go. And they'd all record. And then we, and then the first person whose phone stopped recording would go, put their hand up. And then we'd, okay, right. And we get ready for the next one. And the students who couldn't record at all, they were getting their copies of the recordings by infrared transfer oh, wow. because there was infrared was available they'd get there they'd share the files by infrared to each other so they all learnt new skill doing that and there were some students whose uh, families had uh, decided they didn't want their kids having phones and so for those students I would give them a cd recording or I would give them a, a cassette recording and they could take the take that home and I'd simply have I'd make the recording on my machine and I'd simply dub that onto a cassette for them so that they everybody left at the end of the day everybody went out the door with the same set of material and so we did it in real time mm -hmm. in the classroom and the results were um yeah the results were quite profound I mean the students ability to do the language tasks were really really high because they liked their they liked their phones and when they were on a bus they could just sit there with headphones on and nobody would know that they were studying English Right. Yeah. So we don't do it enough. We just don't do it enough, really. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was it was a fun it was a fun thing to be able to do. So and 
um, and it's been backed up by the fact that the case, you know, the, the mobile phone is now ubiquitous in language classrooms. And I think we should use it more. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, the, the amazing stat that I like to point out is that there are 6,000 languages in the world, mm. but only less than 3,000 of them are written. So that means there are 3,000 languages that are spoken. That's it. You can, you can hear it and you can speak it. That's the only form of communication, which shows you that that's how the brain is designed. <laughs> it's designed for oral input. You know, it's not designed for text input. So all of these problems that we have are because our brain through thousands of years, evolution, the whole thing, it's just not programmed to get information from text. And, mm. and uh, speaking of that, can we segue into the different types and your wonderful appendix that you have in this article in the language teacher? So first we looked at dyslexia. Now the next mm -hmm. one you have is dysgraphia. Mm. Am I saying that right? Dysgraphia? That's right. Yeah, dysgraphia. Yeah. And so dysgraphia is uh, people with dysgraphia write quite slowly. And the thing that you'd notice about their writing is that the letters never appear to be the same twice. Uh, they're, and sometimes it looks like they're pushing the pencil right into the paper mm -hmm. or it may be very light. And then they can't read their own notes. Oh, whoa. So, and they miss, they miss small details because they're trying so hard to make the writing legible. So another thing they might have difficulty is with actually processing. And I honestly don't know what part of the brain this is coming from and, and also how common it is to the other factors. I think you'd only find out from the MRI studies, but how you do it, I don't know, is taking notes while listening. Mm -hmm. is really really hard but now we have ways around this we've got um there's kinds of software things uh, one of the ones my daughter uses I'll, I'll, I'll say the name of it uh, notability it's a recording app and you basically it will record while you take notes and when you put your pen on a particular page piece of the page or the screen it will go back to um, the audio from that particular point so if you weren't able to read what you'd written, you can just click and it will go back to where it was and you'll be able to listen to it again. And I think that's brilliant technology. That does sound brilliant. And I've, I, I've heard about it a lot in a actually a teacher community that we're both involved in and mm. I haven't checked it out yet. Is that only for the, uh, the iPad and the iPhone or is it just the iPad? Um, I don't know yet. I haven't bought it myself yet. I believe it's on, um, I know it's on the iPad. I don't know if it's on the computer or not. It might be. I honestly Probably. don't know. There's something that's tablet, something that's tablet yeah. en enabled. So there's other kinds of devices. There's things, um, there's different kinds of pens. There's different kinds of paper. There's a um, particular type of paper, which if you use a special pen, it will, um, it'll digitally record that part of it. It looks like real paper but it's not, mm -hmm. it's actually a different kind of paper in it and it stores uh, information digitally and you can scan the, scan the text and it will pick it up. You can scan it with a pen. I mean, so many different options. Um, and of course the problem with dysgraphia is it's, is just because somebody's handwriting doesn't look good, doesn't mean that what they're saying is not valid. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there is a tendency to uh, to um, to assume, oh well, if they're not not doing neat handwriting, they just can't be bothered, or they're being they're, it's um, slapdash, or you know, they're just not paying respect to the teacher by writing neatly. They may not physically be able to do it, well, that's or they may not even be aware of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that was a big issue for me, but yeah. I think maybe people that would counter argue that um, or argue that I should say would might mention, uh, for example, Japanese students, it does seem like they all have such good handwriting that it's something that you, you know, you, it's just training. You just got to do it. Um, the old wax on wax off, do it a million times and, and you'll be able to write, you know, perfectly like anybody else. What would you say to people that say that? Well, I'd say that that's, they haven't spent enough time in elementary schools 
basically, because there are students who have difficulty writing in Japanese. And those same students are perfectly capable of talking and being very elaborate about things, but they just write slower and their writing won't be as neat. And it's harder, I think, for them because there is an aspect of art form mm-hmm. in Japanese writing. It's it's very, very closely linked into culture. So failing at doing something that's so incredibly important to your culture, it would be extremely hard. And um, there's, uh, before I did a workshop for JALP, um, Japan Association Language Teaching a couple of years ago, I talked to a, a fellow whose um, his child is a second generation dyslexic and she had left school in middle school and he was terribly upset for her that she was having the same experience that he did. And he left school relatively young because he felt really unhappy because of how he was treated because of his handwriting. Mm-hmm. And for him, it's heartbreaking to see that happen again to the next generation. And I think this is what's um, bringing forward a, like a, a kind of activism at the moment for people about let's actually open the box and have a look inside it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it is really difficult. And I do, and I'm one of the people that has not good handwriting. And, um, and it is hard having constantly getting school reports saying um, work could be neater, work could be neater, work could be neater. It's as a mantra from teachers for mm-hmm. the years. Um, one of the, I've been interviewing people within Jowton and one of the people I interviewed said that the feeling of absolute panic when somebody hands them a paper and a pen, like a form to fill in, Mm-hmm. It's gripping panic. Mm-hmm. And if you're a person who's got neat handwriting, you will never experience that. But if you go back to what I said about when you're stressed, you're not learning. That's right. You can't function. So so that's that's dysgraphia. It's real. It's got a neurological basis to why somebody can't write neatly. And the solutions are, let them do voice to text. Let them type. Right. It's that simple. Yeah, it's I mean, absolutely it's a, simple. It's a lifesaver uh, having something like um, you know OneDrive or Google Docs, where now we can just make comments on the paper, uh, mm-hmm. and we don't have to worry about writing. Because before, when I would do corrections against you know carbon dating myself, I hated it because I knew I'd make a mistake, mm-hmm. and I. I it was embarrassing as the teacher that I would write something on the paper and then it would either look worse than the, the student's handwriting or I would make a mistake. And then I'm like, Oh, I didn't want to say that. But now with the, with the computer and typing um, and the comment boxes, it's just so much easier. Uh, so let's go ahead and move on. So the next one is dyscalculia, which I assume is math related. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. Can you explain that? Uh, yes, I can explain, explain a little to you about that. Um, that's again, there's something else that some of our community people in the community of JALP have uh, talked to me about. That's um, problems. Uh, just, with... I'm sorry, just real quick for, for people that are outside of Japan, JALP stands mm. for the Japanese Association of Language Teachers. It's a big group of or, an, or association of teachers in Japan. Mm. Sorry. And yes, so the uh, uh, so people with dyscalculia may have difficulty with. Um, uh, using symbols such as the ands, uh, such as the um, the plus, the minus, the division signs, those things, they might have difficulty with positive and negative numbers. They might have uh, problems with sequences of things um, such as like if you are doing a language test and you've got to uh, use a lozenge system of read this part, select A, B, C, D, and then and then go across and lozenge the symbol with a, you know, the shade in that section Mm -hmm. of the the card, that's going to be really, really hard for a person with dyscalculia. It's going to be incredibly hard for them to keep those things lined up. And so one of the ways around it, a nice, easy hack for that kind of thing is to literally put your finger, one finger on the section that you've got the answer on one part of the, of your text, test book, 
and then put your thumb or your finger on from with the other hand, put your finger down on the correct answer space and color it in so that you're not, so that at the time that you're not scanning backwards and forwards, there's no danger of you then accidentally going, slipping a line and going to the next line down or the next All line right. up. So if that makes sense. So, so put your finger on, on the things that you need to mark and then moor it down and then mark it. So um, they might have difficulty with timing. Some people with um, dyscalculia might have difficulty with um, phrasing in uh, learning uh, the rhythm, syllable rhythm. So uh, they might have difficulty with poetry. Uh, they also, there's an interesting group within this who they have really good maths processing skills and they can just tell you the answer, but they can't do the working on the board. And then they get accused uh, the of linear cheating. Process. Yep, they, de yeah. they get accused of cheating. And that's really, really heartbreaking. And I've had people come and talk to me about um, is this is this possible? Is it real? Do people is it possible for people to do this? Because the same person may use their fingers to count sort of like really concrete things like days of the week or months or something. You might see them doing something like that. And people will think, oh yeah, they're thick. But if they're using their fingers, right. but the same person can then do some sort of complex math task and you have no way of knowing like very, very difficult problem. Um, and maths is just everywhere. Using maths and symbols, it's everywhere. Right. And it's particularly, it, it affects language classes because of how um, um, how we um, you know, design worksheets, how we design tests and things because the, you use mathematical symbols on those. So, um, well, and one of the solutions around that is to allow more space uh, to between uh, rows of text for key instructions mm -hmm. and things. And if you're going to use symbols, make sure that the fonts are, um, that you're using a fairly solid font so that it's easier to read. But um, yeah, the math, yeah. The, another thing of dyscalculia I read about recently was um, it can affect your ability to manage time. So you might always be late. <laughs> somewhere or people you might have more speeding tickets because you don't know you can't estimate how long something's going to take even if you can prove to yourself that uh it, okay it's going to take me 25 minutes to drive there does your brain does that match up with what your brain's doing so for people with uh, dyscalculia who have issues of time the the, the lifesaver is um um lots and lots of timers and um giving yourself lots and lots of countdown timers and um, those sort of alerts on the phone that'll buzz when you need them to. So that's, um, yeah, that's that's um, the rhythm part of it, dyscalculia time and rhythm. Well, okay. and for teachers, that's that's the biggest problem, isn't it? I mean, besides leveling, I would say, the, the you know, students having different levels and not really being the same level in the, in the, in the class, I would say the next biggest problem is that I never really thought about it until you mentioned that, but that students finishing a task all at the same time never happens. Mm. You have 20 students. They have to do something. You estimate it's going to take them five minutes. It takes mm. three kids, two minutes, and it takes, mm. you know, most of the class, maybe five, six minutes, but it's going to take another couple students, 10 to 15 minutes. And so you have mm. that dilemma. You're like, what do you do? Do you just let them finish? And of course, you know, the, the snarky teacher trainer is going to go like, well, you have to have stuff prepared, but you can't do that for every lesson, for every activity, you know, all day long. But that's, you know, now that you worded it like that, it's, it really is kind of the, the big problem, isn't it? That all the students are going to learn at a different pace. They are. They're all going to learn at a different pace. And I guess that is an issue about extension, uh, extension activity. Um, going back to the very briefly going back to the issue of reading when just because you mentioned about students finishing at the same time there's nothing worse than having students doing a reading aloud activity even in even if they're doing a dialogue or something in pairs and they finish and then they sit down and you have eventually you have these poor kids left standing who 
<laughs> gradually peter out to nothing and you just think ah oh, that is yeah. just so hard now there's a really simple fix for this and mm -hmm. that is that when you set them before they start to speak you say okay um please do your uh please do your dialogue or please do your reading and just keep repeating just keep repeating until i say stop and your job as a teacher is to monitor the classroom so you walk around, it'll, it won't take you long to see who are the faster readers, who are the slower readers, and you just watch around until you can see that that kid has actually got through it, until they've completed it. Mm -hmm. And you let it go on until they just start again, and then you say stop. And that yeah. way you're not drawing attention to that person, you are protecting their ego, you're giving them that one sense of, look, this is not a chamber of horrors, this is actually a place I can be safe. You might also want to look at your, the way you've presented the material. If it's a worksheet, um, if you uh, some other things I describe in the in the article are about um, learnings on increasing the font spacing, uh, the character spacing, the the space between lines. If you make it about one point five, and if you increase the character spacing to one point three, and most software will allow you to do that you can increase the readability and there have been tests on uh, lots of studies on different kinds of fonts and on different kinds of um, factors and one of the the overall factors is that increasing the character spacing by about 1.3 will increase the readability and that will usually also push the font out to being slightly it'll increase the row spacing when you do that and there's this an assumption that oh that's too much space but in reality it might be a perfect amount of space mm -hmm. for an unknown percentage of your class you might also have students um, uh, who have low vision and so they need uh, they need better contrast so in that case what you're looking at is um, the same things that will help them are actually what will help other students which is a sans serif font something like um, Google Open Sans is a good one. I've heard about that from uh, Professor Wilson in the, U in the UK. Um, so Google Open Sans, Sans for Serif, it's got a certain amount of character spacing built into it. And don't go for a narrow font. Go uh, If you see the word narrow in the font name, don't use it because it's going to be harder for people to read. If for a general group of people, there are uh, there's a font called Universal Design uh, UD Digital Kyokushu Jitai, which is a Japanese font um, designed by a company called Morisawa, and that is a uh, it's a universal de design font which is quite easy to read in Japanese and English. And I, um, if I'm writing a page which is going to use both languages, I use that that font. Okay. Was that the same font that was in your article? No, the, the one that was in the article was called um, Open Dyslexic Alta, and, um, or Alt-A, I've just learned. Um, so Open Dyslexic is a weighted font, which means that the, the shape of the letters is heavy at the bottom and it's thin at the top. So how I use that font is when I'm teaching um, alphabet to young children, I actually give them um, small paper discs which have got the, the alphabet in these font letters and they glue them onto the tops of pet bottle caps. And then I give them a chart which shows a um, phonetic pronunciation of the names of the letters so that they can learn to name them. And they just practice it in their own sort of time, sort of arranging the letters, whether it be in A, B, C, D, E order, or whether they just practice of picking up the one that they recognize and matching them up, because just learning the alphabet in straight order doesn't really help you if you want to quickly name a letter. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to just name them. So um, they practice sort of doing those things, and then they make words with them. And uh, because you can say, OK, let's make this word, put the word on the board, and the kids make the word. You can give them, they can look at things from their textbooks, and they can make the word with it with the caps, etc. And the beauty of that is that when you look at these letters, the the kids just look at them and you explain once these letters are 
thin at the top and they're heavy on the bottom and they just pick them up and they flip them and they put them straight down in the way that they need to. Oh, so I there's see. never any confusion, never ever any confusion about which way up is this letter. So if you've got an, and I watch them looking at the N and the U and the H and also B and D and P and Q, they're all weighted and shaped so that they're all slightly different. But if, you've, if you're a person who happens to have a box of plastic alphabet pieces in your house, get them out and have a look at the B and the D and the P and the Q and then just see if you can work out which one is which. Because I have seen commercially available sets and it is impossible to work out which is which of those four letters because yeah. they're all perfectly unique. I mean, they're all perfectly um, identical. Yeah. Anybody who's taught kids has known that because like you, you, you'll pick up the kit, the card. And even as an adult, you don't know, you kind of mm. have to look and, and check. Mm. Um, so yeah. we just have a, a few more here. Can we, can we okay, go to sure. uh, dyspraxia? That yep. was the one I was saying I thought I might have because I write incredibly slowly. Mm. Um, so you're saying that you, this dyspraxia, uh, I'm sorry, can you explain? Yeah, sure. So people with dyspraxia, um, they, like some of the other issues, they they have um, uh, problems with um, losing their place when they're reading. So yes. they might skip over words or they might skip from one line to the next. And they uh, people with dyspraxia may also they might they might move their head when they're reading a mm -hmm. bit like they might move it around. Um, I've certainly seen students who who holding books and holding things are moving the book forward and backwards from their face or moving their head slightly. And, and that tells me there's something going on with how the information is going in. Um, they write, they write quite slowly. Um, their pressure is uneven. So, which is quite similar to dysgraphia and they're, um, they're, they're not going to be able to keep up handwriting and it's going to get worse the longer it goes. They're going to get more and more tired. And often they'll have an interesting pen grip. So the way they're holding the pen, um, they, um, yeah, they, they won't have the traditional tripod grip going. And they, um, and as, as adults, you might end up with a bit of nerve damage in your thumb from gripping the pencil mm -hmm. really hard, you know, like sort of that, that can become an issue, particularly when you're going through university the amount of stuff that you have to pump out by hand you might get a really really sore sore thumb and there's um ways around that are things like just wrapping some um wrapping some foam around the pen uh, increasing mm -hmm. the diameter of the pen makes a big difference um and i'm just going to wave something at the screen here for your benefit on my on my apple pencil i've got a um i've got an egg-shaped egg-shaped sponge ball and that is really really comfortable for writing for sustained periods of time for me. Um, so just for the listeners, she's got a, basically it looks like a Nerf, like a ball, a styrofoam <laughs> ball that goes around the pen. That's brilliant actually. So yep. you could squeeze the ball as you write. Oh, I want to yeah. get one of those. Yeah, That's a so great, just, that is fantastic. So it gives you a tripod grip, Uh huh. a really nice tripod grip, but it also takes the pressure off the, the off the um the nerves in the thumb because people would like try if you're trying really hard to control something um that will be an issue now one of the interesting things about dyspraxia is that um it can go with um hypermobility in the joints and so people with dyspraxia might be able to do um they might be a bit more clumsy than your average person but they might also be really flexible Mm -hmm. And they might be able to do things like turn their hands sort of like 360 their folded hands, oh, things wow. like that, or um, or bend their thumbs back because they've got more mobility. And that can cause physical stress. So when they're sitting still, they might be sitting and they might be moving in the chair. And if you notice a kid that's actually moving in a chair all the time, to me, moving in the chair means they've hit the physical wall on either concentration or physical comfort. And that's um, and when you see people doing that, that's a really good opportunity for uh, building in a standing up brain break. Um, and um, I know Mark Helgelson and Curtis Kelly talk a lot about these in their um, um, workshops that you need to give people time to 
um, to physically and mentally refresh on a regular <coughs> basis when they're studying. So sitting still may cause them stress. Mm-hmm. And people will often think, oh, they're just getting off task or they're doing something, you know, they're, they're just not focusing, they can't be bothered. But it might actually be that they're, they're actually are in physical discomfort. Right. And this is all day, every day. So the other thing they might do is they might have stuff flowing off the desk and onto the floor, or they might lose papers, or they um, they might, they, these are going to be the kids who are not going to have their book with them, or they might have a, one page out of it, or they might have difficulty um, knowing where it was because they've had a great idea of how to reorganize their stuff. And suddenly they it's not where they expected it to be and they panic so time management can also be a problem and these kids also if they if they've grown up with the um the clumsy factor they've they've got a history of being picked last for sport <laughs> and that's a terrible situation to be in yeah so why is they're that going into um well if you're always going to be picked last you're going to be the person no. the very I mean, last well, person I... it's no um, but i mean why what, what's the trait that they like because they're not good at sports or um, they're not good at sports because their hand-eye coordination isn't good. They can't, uh, they might have, uh, if you've got hypermobility of the joints, uh, you may have difficulty running and uh, running fluidly. You might have, uh, you could be easily able to dislocate something. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, a, it's just like, um, maybe your body turns into a bag of cats really. And it's got a mind of its own. So that it just moves, doesn't move fluidly. So yeah, they have yeah. a lot of um, a oh, lot of challenges. So it, it's very very interesting. So <laughs> um, so yeah, be aware that that kid wiggling in the chair may be wiggling for something that they're completely unaware of. Uh, okay, so we have uh, we, we're kind of getting short on time. So we have two left. That's um, ADHD and ADD. So why don't mm. we lump these together? Can you explain the difference? What is the difference okay. between ADHD yep. and ADD? Okay, the difference between the two of them. So there's um, Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and that's the formal name of the term. And so it means that you have difficulty of attention, you have and you have difficulty of hyperactivity, but within to keep moving around. But the within that too, you have a couple of other types which are the uh, predominantly inattentive, and those people don't move around all the time. Um, they are not yelling out answers all the time or they're not sort of doing something that you're just not expecting. They're just more likely to be gazing out the window or they're, they might be staring into space while they're actually thinking something through. They look like they're staring into space, but they're actually thinking. But mm-hmm. their, uh, their ability to, to keep the focus is lower. And then the hyperactive people are pretty obvious. That's the first head that goes up in the classroom when you've actually told kids to start doing something, the first head that goes up is probably going to be an undiagnosed ADHD kid because they're starting already to, they're pre-panicking on whether or not they're going to finish their work and whether they've got time and what's everybody else doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the combined types. So you've got people who are balanced between inattention and hyperactivity. So, um, and the problem for these uh, for these students is that they, um, they're going to m- lose, um, they're going to miss words out they're going to, uh, they've got working memory problems. They may not um, recall information. They're going to have to read it more quickly. They might look like they're reading aloud um, when you tell them to read silently. And so that's, they may not appear to be reading silently. Um, They might have difficulty comprehending the text. They're going to panic if they don't know. They're more likely to look like they're going to give up early. And um, ADHD, if you have a com- combination of ADHD and dyslexia, that is one of the hardest combinations to have um, as, a, um, as an adult because um, your chances of literacy are much lower and your chances of uh, going on to be a smoker and to have um, uh, problems with alcohol, et cetera, are much higher. Mm. So, but if you do... Uh, but there are things you can do in the classroom the way as you do things as a teacher using um, things, markers on the board about what's coming up in the class. Um, if you've got 
got something on the board about what's coming up, then just putting a magnet to sliding that down at each section. If you write on there of what page we're looking at, okay, we're going to do this page and we're going to do point six, and then we and then in the next section we're going to be jumping to point ten. If you actually just put that on the board where you're going or worksheets section A to Z type thing or whatever, if you put that on the board, they can independently check it. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to be dependent on you. They don't have to be asking somebody else. They can always check back to see where they're going. It's a very useful strategy. Um, now they might have problem with proofreading. And again, if you teach, teach kids to get into the habit of running their eyes along the whole sentence for questions, again, the same thing of um, getting group reading of discussions, or if, in a, if you're doing it with uh, uh, with university students, chuck them into a breakout room to confirm that they've understood this, understood the task, get them to very quickly, okay, what are we doing? Right, we're doing this and bring them back and to say, okay, what are we doing first? What are we doing next? What are we doing next? And what time are we doing this by? That will help them. Um, they, hyperactivity, hyperactive ones are going to talk excessively. They're going to yell out the answers because the second it goes into their ears, gets processed, it comes straight out of the mouth. And the um, and the the way to solve that in a class is to do something like have a um, have a jar of sticks with student numbers written on them, and um, and in a, in pre COVID time I would do that and I would give the jar of sticks to the uh, to the hyperactive kid or whoever whoever volunteered to do it and that's probably going to be the hyperactive kid will want to be the stick manager. Um, and but we can't do that at the moment. So there's, I think there's a thing floating around on a software called WordWall. There's a great yes. random wheel. So yeah. that the random wheel, you can use that for picking volunteers. That will help the ADHD student to um, not to yell out yeah. in class because that's terribly embarrassing when you have no intention of doing that and then you find yourself doing it and you think, why did I do that? Mm -hmm. So um, they have a lot of... Um, um, they have a lot of negative experiences. Um, there's a study by uh, Michael Jelinek, who from the US, and he he's a psychiatrist. He examined um, elementary schooling, and he found that students with ADHD were likely to have 20,000 20, non-positive encounters with teachers by the time they finished year six. Oh, wow. That's a lot. And that is a lot. And <laughs> so. That's an understatement. That's a lot. 26,000? 20,000. 20,000. That's And crazy. that's just at school. That's just during school. That didn't count the times that they were scolded when they were in a sports club or in some other activity. Yeah. So, and that, that leads to a... Um, it leads to a condition called rejection sensitivity. And that basically it means that you're going, expecting you're going to make a mistake. So you're on the back foot all of the time. And for some people that will manifest into becoming really argumentative. And um, yeah, it's really, really difficult. The rejection sensitivity is a relatively new term and it's well worth looking up. So they get overwhelmed by mm -hmm. information and then this sort of childhood experience of being told off kicks in so the older the person is the more times they've been criticized for not being good enough never being xyz enough that's all in there when that person walks into your classroom so the more you can use um the more you can use your classroom to give them ways of seeing predictable information that will really help them. If you, um, you know, if your emails that go out to students, if you have things that tell them clearly the times that you want to be contacted, or the or how to do things, or where or where to go and find more copies of X or Y, have it all set up there so that they don't have to try and write to you, write their life story to you. That they actually do things without, you know, get another copy of something without being embarrassed. If um, if you're going to hand out sheets to students, punch holes in them, just punching holes in the sheets. And if you're encouraging them to keep a, keep them, to have a file, 
punch the holes in the sheets, tell them to put, tell everybody to put their stuff in the sheets. It's that simple. That mm -hmm. is the difference between something getting lost and something not getting lost. Doesn't involve anybody getting embarrassed. Mm -hmm. If you have, um, keep a, if you're working from a textbook, keep a spare copy in the desk, a couple of copies in the desk. And if you're, if you're walking around the room, if you know, in a, in a face-to-face -face environment, you're walking around the room and you notice that somebody hasn't got their book, you just slide out a copy of it um, and you drop it on the desk as you go past. You don't, you don't make a fuss. You just let them use it. Mm -hmm. And you, and then at the end of the class, they're going to come up to you with it and they're going to either tell you, oh, thank you very much, or I've got mine, or, or thank you, can I use this next week? And you'll go down as the person who didn't actually make them feel bad. I mean, there's because they're going to lose things. They just are. Yeah. So anyway, that's, um, yeah, that's our, uh, that's our time is up on that, I'd imagine. But yeah, this, yeah. this article is actually, it's now in the archives and it's now available for public, um, for anybody to read. So there's an opportunity we can put a link in the podcast notes, perhaps. We definitely will. And actually, the 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 appendix is fantastic. I mean, it's it's a well written short article. Um, you mainly talk about teaching kids, but it applies to everybody, and especially that appendix. How you break it down, all the different uh, neurodiversities, and uh, it's it's eye opening and very helpful. So thank you so much for putting that together, and thank you're, you so you're much. You're welcome. For Oh, oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a thank pleasure. You to talk. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, I wish you the best luck in the future. Thank you very much. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.